So I'm guessing that you out there have heard of the term midlife crisis. It's in our culture. It's everywhere. For instance, just doing a Google search by midlife crisis comes up with how an 18th century philosopher helped me solve my midlife crisis. Here's another article in Huffington Post, how to beat a midlife crisis. Here's another one. The midlife crisis in America's war on cancer. There's another one. Welcome to Scott Martinson's Midlife Crisis. What's that one about? <laughs> Let's click on that one. The article is redacted. That's great. All right. Well, here's another person. Researchers have claimed to have added up the cost of a midlife crisis and that it costs over 17,000 pounds to go through a midlife crisis. Here's another one. Iran's political midlife crisis. Here's another one. 13 things couples buy when they're going through a midlife crisis. They buy a boat, a car, a holiday home, a watch, jewelry, a motorbike, Botox, a beach hut, golf clubs, an at-home cinema, a personal gym, a musical instrument, a photography course. Here's another person. Why so many of us experience a midlife crisis. Here's one. Ten uncomfortable truths about the midlife crisis. Here's another one Huffington Post. What a modern midlife crisis looks like. So what's the research say? What's the psychological research say about the midlife crisis? Is it a real thing or is it just a made-up thing? We'll get into that. Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your loyal host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a practicing psychotherapist and I'm also chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end early. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com. Patrons of the podcast get access to exclusive episodes like this one, along with other various benefits and swag. So again, if you haven't already, go to patreon.com and become a patron to our podcast so you can listen to this episode. And patrons, you have access to this full episode on the Patreon page. Just go to the Creator Posts tab and you will find it there. All right. Hello, patrons. Uh, this actually was prompted, this topic was actually prompted by patron Zoe. We actually have two patrons named Zoe. So this is patron Zoe H, I'll say. Longtime listener to the podcast. She has sent emails uh, before and she says, hi, Professor Honda. By the way, a lot of you are emailing me and preferring to me as professor. Uh, I can only assume it's because I said something on an earlier episode in which I get a little smile when people refer to me as professor, which I do. And I don't know, I feel really funny actually like have, putting that out there and having you do that because because it makes me feel like I'm asking for some kind of accolade or this constant like respect or something. But I have to say, it's nice. I, I don't know. There's just something about being called the professor. Freud liked to be called professor. And so, I don't know. There's just something sort of classical about it. <laughs> Maybe it's the Japanese in me. You know, whenever I have a Japanese student at Antioch, they always refer to me as sensei. There's just something, you know, in the Japanese culture, you get referred to by your position, particularly if you're a teacher. And there's just something kind of, I don't know, just sort of satisfying about being referred to as professor. So anyway, thank you everyone for <laughs> referring to me as professor, but it seems really, really, I don't know, just, uh, pompous or something of me to ask people to do that. 
and uh, believe me, I'm not. At, you can call me anything you want. You can call me dumbass if you want to. Feel for, so. Feel free to email me and say, "Hey, dumbass." I am absolutely fine with that. I don't deserve any more respect than anybody else. But anyway, uh, so anyway, uh, patron Zoe H says, "Hi, Professor Honda. I was wondering if you'd be interested in the following topic." I have noticed that people frequently ascribe issues and feelings to certain developmental eras or stages. For example, you have the blues because you're in your early 20s or having a midlife crisis or going through puberty. The trouble is it seems like many of the symptoms are the same from age to age and that people simply say this to try to make it seem more temporary or to brush the feelings off. I mean, you hear about the dangers of depression in the elderly as much as in adolescence. Maybe, but many people are just depressed. She goes on to say, wow, that sounded darker than it meant to. I'm basically just wondering if there is real evidence to back up the idea that certain stages in life are really prone to more emotional trouble than others. I'd be really interested to know what you think. This is a very good question, and patron Zoe, I super appreciate your skeptical attitude and your search for empirical data. I consider psychotherapy to be both a scientific endeavor and also something that cannot be measured very easily by the scientific method. I find that a lot of people and some therapists are not skeptical enough of the notions that are rattling around in our culture, and the midlife crisis and other kinds of things like this are some of those un, unquestioned ideas that are out there. And it's not that big of a deal when some false notion is rattling around out there, unless it is used in a negative way. And so uh, let's, let's get into that here. So first off, yes, uh, patron Zoe, I find that people tend to generalize their own experience to the entire race. So Patron Zoe brings up a number of issues, and so let me just say a few things here. Uh, For example, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, oh, that's a woman thing, or, oh, you know men, they're all like that. I've heard the same characteristic applied to both genders. Like I've heard women say that men are overly organized, and I've heard men say that women are overly organized. Again, this usually just reflects their individual experience. For instance, a man who is annoyed with his wife's organizational you know, uh, issues will say, you know, all women are overly organized. And it drives me a little batty when I hear this. I always wonder, so you have an N of one, and that means now you know the entire human race? So it always just drives me a little crazy when I hear this. So yes, when people say things like, he's just going through a midlife crisis, or all middle schoolers are unhappy, I think the way you do, Zoe. I think that must reflect your experience, and you're trying to comfort yourself by making it seem like everyone is exactly like that, or you're just trying to attack it by, as, by labeling it. For example, if a 45-year-old husband is feeling hurt by a distancing wife, and he turns to his friends for comfort, and he decides to buy a boat so he and his friends can hang out, a wife might feel hurt and scared about that. And instead of talking about it in a vulnerable way, in a functional way, she might label it as a midlife crisis. 
Or another example, if a teen girl is feeling hurt and vulnerable because her parents are struggling in their marriage and she starts to isolate in her room to protect herself, the parents might feel hurt because their child is rejecting the parents. And instead of trying to bridge the gap through some functional way, they might defensively say, oh, you know teen girls, they hate their families, it's just a stage. So yes, I totally agree, patron Zoe, that people will ascribe issues to certain developmental stages as a way of either simplifying things because it's more comforting when things are simple or to, uh, to attack it or to distance them, themselves from it. Having said all that, there are common developmental stages to human life, and there's been a lot of empirical research on it. It would take me way too long to even scratch the surface on developmental psychology. There's a whole field called developmental psychology, and there are millions of studies investigating all aspects of life in various cultures. So just know that there's a lot of data out there pointing to various different tendencies among humans to develop in particular ways and to exhibit particular issues or particular behaviors or particular emotions at particular stages in life. Also, mental illnesses often have particular onset ranges and prevalence differences at different ages. For example, for major depressive disorder, 18 to 29-year-olds are three times more likely to qualify for the diagnosis than people 60 years of age or older. And the onset of major depression is most likely between about 13 and 29. So, so in terms of what you're talking about earlier, how they say, oh, teens are depressed and also elderly people are depressed. I think what people are trying to say when they're doing that is they're saying, don't forget that elderly people can be depressed too. But it would be inaccurate to claim that the elderly experience more depression than other groups of people, when in fact they actually experience less depression than other groups of people. But that isn't to say that elderly people do not get depressed, because they do. Now let's get into the concept of the midlife crisis. It's often thought that men at midlife will do stupid and impractical things like quit their job or buy a red Corvette or dump their spouse for a younger woman. This stereotype became popular after research in the late 70s and then became a part of our culture in the 80s, and it's now just a part of most people's assumptions about men at midlife. And midlife is usually between like, you know, 40 and 50. It keeps getting older and older as our life expectancy gets older. I think originally midlife was like, you know, 35 to 45. Now, most people wouldn't consider 35 to be, to be midlife. But Okay, so, so let's get into the research. Well, in summary, there is no compelling empirical data that individuals at midlife experience more crises than people at any other stage in life. And the research definitely does not support the stereotype that men at midlife make impulsive and harmful decisions to hold on to their youth. So again, there's no empirical data that people at midlife experience more crises than people at any other stage of life. And the research definitely does not support the stereotype that men at midlife make these impulsive, harmful decisions as a way of trying to be youthful. There's a lot of research on it because whenever you have a popular concept like this in, in the culture, there tends to be a lot of research around it. And since it's been around since the late 70s, there's been a lot of research. And I could go into the specifics around it, but just take it from me, the midlife crisis concept is inaccurate. Now, having said that, some men do do this. And this is one of the things that 
common non-scientifically non-scientifically literate people will think they'll think well i know a guy who at 45 divorced his wife got a red sports car and started dating a 25 year old woman so therefore the midlife crisis is real you can't tell me it's not real because i've seen it happen in real life well, sure, some people fit the stereotype. Coincidentally, they fit the stereotype. But again, a, an N of one or a sample of one does not equal a trend or a phenomenon. So just because some men will fit this stereotype does not mean that all men are like that. For instance, you could say, well, I saw a black guy commit a crime. Therefore, all black men are criminals. That's ridiculous, right? Well, the same goes for stereotypes regarding gender. Just because you've seen it does not mean that it's a does, does not mean that all people are like that. And it doesn't even and it doesn't even mean that men have a tendency to do that. Again, I just want to tell you. Again, the research shows that men don't even have a tendency to do this. It's not. It's not like I'm saying. Yeah, sure, there's a group of men that are... It's not like I'm saying, well, men are more likely to have this midlife crisis problem. I'm not, the data doesn't even show that. The data just shows, no, the midlife crisis thing is a falsehood. So just know that, even though you might find uh, coincidences. So it seems as though the midlife crisis is just a cultural myth. And as the science has rolled in over the years, it has never been taken seriously in the psychological world. There are so many things that are just not taken seriously in the psychological or the psychotherapeutic world because people that actually read research and understand culture and stereotype will actually understand that the midlife crisis construct is not a helpful construct and not accurate. Having said that, if a group of 45-year-olds had a powwow and talked about what it was like to be 45 then they would likely have commonalities, particularly in a, in a particular culture. So I'm not saying that there aren't things about midlife that are common to people in a particular culture. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that the construct of the midlife crisis, particularly how men will try to grab onto their youth at the age of 45, that part of it is inaccurate. But it's totally accurate to say something like, there, there tend to be some commonalities for people at particular stages of life. You know, for instance, for teenagers, you can say that there are common experiences to most teenagers. Well, at the age of 45, right, you know, between 40 and 50, there, there are common experiences that you will hear people of that group talk about, even across cultures. And there's a lot of research regarding that. For instance, People, if a group of 45-year-old men and women got together and talked about what it was like to be 45, they might have similar parenting concerns since their children might, might be of similar age, if they have children. They might have similar concerns about their aging parents. They might have similar concerns about their aging bodies. They might have similar concerns about their future retirement or the way they approach their careers. But that doesn't constitute any more of a crisis than any other age group. If we constitute these things as crises, well, every age group has their own crises, you know. And just because someone has a crisis at midlife does not mean that the crisis was caused by midlife. Remember that correlation does not mean causation. So even though you yourself or you know people have had crises at midlife, 
That doesn't mean that the midlife caused it. For instance, if you went through a divorce at midlife, you know, and or you had major motivation to get divorced. Say you turn, you know, 40 years old and you start reassessing your life and you start thinking, "Man, I really don't want to be in this marriage. I got married when I was 25 and I, you know, I, what am I doing with my life? How how did I get here?" That is a uh, Talking Heads song. How did I get here? This is not my beautiful wife. I am having a midlife crisis. So you can have a crisis at midlife, but that doesn't necessarily mean that midlife caused it. So in other words, you say you have a crisis at the age of 25 or at the age of 30. I hear from so many 30-year-olds that, particularly in Seattle, shall we say white privileged 30-year-olds and Asian 30-year-olds, will say that their career isn't moving as fast as they were hoping it would. When they were 20 or 22, they had a vision of what their life would be like by the time they were 30. And when they become 30, they realize that they have not reached their goals. And what I end up talking with these clients about is that culture has told them that they need to do a certain thing and to value certain things. And since they came from a privileged class, they had a certain idea about how far they would go. Plus, they were raised in a time when they were told they could do anything. You know, there were other groups of people that were not raised that way. And so they're, they're sort of unique in this way. And although there's a certain liberating aspect to being told that you can do anything, there's also a tremendous amount of pressure because if you don't become above average, then you somehow squandered your opportunity because you had so much opportunity. And so there's so many 30-year-old privileged Seattleites that will be extremely down on themselves and really quite depressed because they're not meeting their expectations regarding their career and their prestige. So anyway, in conclusion, the construct of the midlife crisis to define it is that, that it's usually ascribed to men, and it usually means that, it, that the individual has had a good amount of life behind them and a good amount of life before them. And they reassess things, and they have some kind of freak out, and they end up doing impulsive, silly behaviors to somehow compensate for their impending death, <laughs> is another way of putting it. So, you know, and that's why the stereotype is that, oh, he's, that man is worried about his, his, the fact that he's getting old now, and so he's buying and doing all these young things. You know, I just thought about something. Uh, 45-year-olds, in my experience, they often, in general, reach a point in their career and in terms of their bills that they suddenly have money they can spend on themselves. You know, take a, a typical guy in our society. Well, he grows up in a family where, you know, he doesn't have a ton of disposable income for himself, you know, certainly. He goes to college. You know, college people are typically extremely poor and live very, very sparsely. And then in your 20s, same thing. You know, you have student debt. You haven't established yourself. You're, you're taking jobs at entry-level wages. You haven't built up any investments. Uh, you know, again, just going off typical sort of situations. Maybe you have kids. There's a lot of money that goes into parenting. In your 30s, again, you're just scraping by. You're just, you're, you know, you're struggling. <laughs> and then you get to 45, 50, and your kids may be in high school or graduated. You're, but then there's college, so there's that. 
But I think the, the larger issue is that by the time you're 45, 50, you will have progressed through your career to the point where you might be earning a lot more money than you were at the age of 25, which makes sense, right? And so suddenly you have, and, and maybe you bought a house and you've been living in it for 10 years. And so your bills are relatively lower than they would be if you're renting from this place to that. And so suddenly now you have disposable income and you can buy that red sports car that you always wanted. So it might not be a function of midlife, but it might just be a function of the fact that most people at midlife now have the money that they can spend on themselves. Now, that, that doesn't explain, you know, getting married to a 25-year-old woman, but it explains the buying of the red sports car, I think. And I think particularly in our culture today, because we have a culture where it's okay as an adult in our culture now, it's okay to be a child still. You know, you'll find 45-year-old men buying things that they always wanted as children. You know, say they wanted a, a real bitchin' Legos set of some sort. They always wanted it. And they, at the age of 45, they have extra income. And they're, you know what, I'm going to buy that thing. And whereas I, I, it, my sense was 30, 40 years ago, that was not the case. You wouldn't find 45-year-old men 30, 40 years ago investing a good amount of money in collecting childhood trinkets. Although you certainly will see that. I knew this one guy who had a super obsession with train um, train components, you know, model trains and model cars. And he was a massive eBay fanatic. And, and it seemed to me that as a child, he always wanted these these little replica vehicles as a child and didn't have the money to buy it. But at midlife, he had the money and he, and he just went hog wild. And his entire office was just filled with, <laughs> it was pretty cool looking actually. They were just, he had, he actually had special shelves made on the, on the wall so he could display all of them around his, his office. And so anyway, my point is, is that, uh, what is my point? My point is that when you, listeners out there and your patrons, because you're listening to this, when you patrons out there whom I love very, very much, when you hear a concept like the midlife crisis, take a second to think about whether or not you have seen compelling scientific evidence, empirical data that supports that cultural notion. Even the ones that don't get questioned by society. For instance, if I said, all black people are criminals or all black people are stupid, the, I'm sure all of you, if you're listeners to this podcast, would immediately say, well, that's ridiculous. I'm sure the data doesn't support that. But if I said something like all men go through a midlife crisis or men in general go through a, some sort of midlife crisis at 45, my guess is, is you wouldn't automatically think, hmm, that sounds suspicious because it's not, it's not offensive really, to most people. And so you wouldn't be motivated to, to be skeptical of it. But I have found, as a person who often looks for data to support things, that so many things that are rattling around in our culture are not supported by the evidence. And there are many things that are supported by evidence that are not rattling around in our culture. Uh, that, that's one thing. The other thing is when you find yourself or other people utilizing these labels to label behavior, you know, like, oh, he's just going through a midlife crisis, or, oh, you know teenagers, 
or, oh, you know women, or, oh, you know old people, or, oh, you know, he's an alpha male, or whatever it is that they're saying. You want to question why they're using that label. Why are they using that cultural label? Are they, are they, are they trying to, is, is, it an, is it an aggression against that person or against that group of people? And what's behind that aggression? Is it that they are afraid of something? Are they hurt by something? That's usually the case. Usually someone feels afraid of something or they feel hurt by something. You know, take the, the whole uh, beta male thing that's going, I don't know if you know what's going on in the media right now, but there are beta males that are uh, grouping together on the internet and hating alpha males. So essentially these are, uh, you know, uh, guys that supposedly don't have as good social skills as alpha males, as they call them, and are struggling socially and romantically. And what, um, and so there are some people on the internet that have aggression toward people that do well socially, so to speak. And they will attack them and they will make fun of, they'll make fun of popular people. They call them Chad's and Stacy's is what I understand or Chad, Chad and Ashley's. So the Chad's are the popular boys and the Ashley's and the Stacy's are the popular girls. And, and so they'll attack them. And you've got to wonder, like, why are you being aggressive toward a group of people? Well, my guess is, is that they have relationship trauma and interpersonal trauma in their past that they were quite terrified and or quite hurt by. And so they are looking for a way to protect themselves from that hurt. And one of the ways that humans protect themselves from hurt, particularly men, because we've been socialized to do this, is to start attacking, is to start being angry. So that's just another little tip is when you hear people labeling things as to and grouping certain groups of people together and putting them down is to think about how they've been hurt by it. All right. I just thought I would end with some of your patron emails here. One person says, I adore your podcast. I just became a patron. Can't wait for future episodes. And patron Danielle says, after I posted the patron exclusive episode. She says, awesome. Thank you. It is good to be a patron. (laughs) That makes me happy. So just know that I read all of your emails, particularly you patrons. I read your emails uh, very intently because I want to create a family of us patrons. I want you guys to start communicating with each other. I want to start referring to you guys and I want us to start pooling our resources (laughs) and I want to have the podcast to be mostly for you guys as patrons. And, you know, screw the non-patrons, the freeloaders. (laughs) All right, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, patrons. Please take care of yourself because you're a patron and you deserve it.